Acts chapter 2. As we look at one of the more familiar passages in early Acts, I want us to keep in mind that this is a simple summary. It's as if somebody looked around and just observed what they saw as these followers of Jesus were embarking on this pilgrim journey together. We called it the church, but this morning we have to work hard at at not thinking of corporate church and rather thinking of the family of God, people that we relate to as brothers and sisters in Christ. Our text unfolds a simple and yet beautiful picture of joyful, meaning, meaningful relationships. It's this picturesque glimpse of followers of Jesus functioning as if they're family, because they are. I want us to long for some of the beauty in this paragraph And I want us to realize that the path to it is one of simplicity. A lot of books have been written about what the church is and should be. One of them struck at the core of this text, and the title is just called Simple Church. It has some good ideas in it, but really you can come up with Simple Church this morning by simply looking at this text and saying, How do I do this? How could I do this? There may be moments in looking at some of these characteristics of the church where you feel like maybe the sermon's a little bit of a rebuke. It's really not my intention. Should you feel that, I would explore that as the Holy Spirit steering you to do a little bit more in that area. Really, as I... Think of Grace Bible Church and this family of believers. There's much in this text that that brings a smile to my face to think of God's work among you, you and your family and and your group of people that you're serving and ministering with. There's a a lot of this text that we we should rightly say, yes, that's, that's happening. And that's a good thing. But I just don't want us focused on that as if there were nothing more we could do. So simple obedience to what God tells us here in Acts chapter 2 should produce the same beauty that unfolds in this text. After all, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what Luke records for us here is that love unfolding in everyday life for these believers, and so it must for us. Here's what I want us to learn from this paragraph. As the family of God, we must commit to living our Christian lives together. That's Acts 2, 41 to 47. They live their lives together. That word is used several times, or words like it. We see that They were devoted to fellowship in verse 42. Verse 44, they were together, had all things in common. They distributed the proceeds to all. 
They attended the temple together and went house to house breaking their bread. And the Lord added to their number. This this whole paragraph is about this togetherness and who this group of people is. And what we learn is that they're the family of God. And so it, it should naturally look like we commit to living our lives together. Sharing this Christian experience. You're following Jesus, so am I. Well, let's do that together. And that's what happened in cities and regions all over the world in this first century. And we called that the church. And we still call it the church. But it seems like we have a hard time really thinking about this as the family of God. Some of you remember growing up singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God until those business meetings rolled around and you thought, that guy is off his rocker. But it's the family of God. You see, we have our idea of family, or at least we know what the, the classic picture of family should look like. Then we have our idea of church. The first century was a little better at taking all the best of family and church and, and kind of merging them together. We do family stuff and we do church stuff and sometimes there's conflicts and we have to choose one or the other. The first century church, I think, was a little better at overlapping these circles so that we realized the family of God is my family. Oh, I've got my kin, my biological family as well, but I can't use family just for that circle. It should be applied to the church circle as well. It's an interesting passage in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is teaching. It's going a little long and so the disciples come and kind of remind Jesus that his his mother and his brothers and sisters are waiting for him. And Jesus gives an answer that sounds almost rude. He says, who are my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? As if to say, that can wait. And he goes on to say, in answer to his own question, who are my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? It's those who follow me. And he introduces us to this concept of a new definition of family that Lord willing and prayerfully includes our our biological family. But Jesus said, my family are those who commit to doing the will of my father. He wasn't saying his mother wasn't family and his brothers and sisters weren't his family. He was simply broadening family to mean all those that I share my Christian life with. That's important for us so that we don't just think church people, one crowd, my family, another crowd. No, we should think the family of God And hopefully that includes most of my church family and my biological family. And then the text is clear that everything we're going to talk about this morning in these characteristics of the church are met with this idea of devotion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Your translation may may read, they continued steadfastly in these things. 
That same word for devotion also shows up in verse 46. I'm not sure why they chose to just use the word attended the temple, but that word attended is the same word in verse 42 for devoting themselves to it. And this word to devote means to continue with pursuit, with this intense effort. It's two words. It's the directional word for to something and the word for enduring. So I endure towards something. That means I start towards it and I get tired, but I keep doing it. I persist. I'm thinking of the athletes among us. The athletes among you. All right. Some of you run run track, right? There's some cross-country people in the crowd. Uh, You start off running, you can feel pretty good, and then the body starts protesting a little bit and you get tired. Our word for devoting themselves to these things is the word for you're on the way and now you're starting to wear out. This isn't as much fun as it seemed. This utopian church family wasn't everything I had hoped it would be. There's some messes here. But you press on and you commit to these relationships so much so that in English we feel it right to say You devoted yourself to it. And it takes a word we usually think of as like pretty intensely spiritual or a word of great consecration, and we say this about ourselves. We devote ourselves to what? To living the Christian life with these people. So it's as if we could pause and just kind of look around the room and say, could I use a strong word like devotion to describe the way I'm sharing my life with other believers. That's how the text comes to us. They devoted themselves to these things as the family of God. This is not simply an unfolding of doctrine about what a church should look like. It's, it's a simple and initial observation of what we saw in this early gathering of believers. So we want to learn from them. In the Sunday school hour, we talked about the Second Great Awakening and the restoration movement that came out of it. The restoration movement was a movement to restore all the denominationalism in the early you know, uh, congregations in the colonies there in the Great Awakening. Uh, and restore them back to the simplicity and the non-denominationalism of the first century church in Acts chapter 2. It's called the Restoration Movement. Let's just look at the Bible and imitate the church we see there. It was a good idea. It didn't work so well. But in a sense, we're going to borrow their heartbeat on the matter and try to look at Acts chapter 2 and see... Is there something that we should be doing in our family today that would help us look more like the church in Acts chapter 2? How do we commit to living our Christian lives together as God's family? I want us to use verse 42 as a simple outline for four commitments this morning. And as we address these, you evaluate yourself first and foremost. 
you can have an eye towards the whole congregation because there are various gifts in the body. And some will naturally be inclined to do some of these things with more passion than others. But keep the focus primarily on self. Am I devoting myself? Am I committing myself to living the Christian life with others in these ways? Number one, you must commit to the apostles' teaching. That's what they did. The apostles, Peter, here stood and preached a sermon. Other apostles were going to teach as well. And they committed themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is that teaching? What do we mean when we say apostolic teaching? There are, there are preachers that stand in pulpits even in this city who are addressed by their congregations as apostles. But we're not using that title quite so loosely. We're going to take a strict, proper definition of apostle uh, and say, no, these are those who, who lived with Jesus or were called by Jesus to deliver his truth. That's why there was so much particular attention to who could fill the position that Judas vacated in Acts chapter 1. And they laid out some of that criteria. They had to be with Jesus and hear his teaching. They had to be chosen by Jesus. So the apostolic teaching isn't just kind of a flippant use of apostle. Uh, we're speaking more specifically than that. And to understand the apostles' teaching, we should start with Jesus' commission of his disciples. We caught a glimpse of it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as they're standing on the mountain watching Jesus ascend to heaven. We hear a more detailed account of the commission in, in Matthew 28. There Jesus tells them, the things that I have taught you, you go and teach others. And when you match that with Acts chapter 1, soon after that he says, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit and you'll spread out to all the regions of the world, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. And the commission was, teach what I have taught you. What Jesus taught the disciples, they taught others, and then they taught others, and on and on it goes. Jude would say, this faith has been passed down through the church as each generation contends for, fights for, truth. And though we live in a nation that still gives us great religious freedom, we're seeing that we're not necessarily fighting a government that restricts that freedom as much as we're fighting a culture that despises that truth. Jesus commissioned his disciples to teach, and that's exactly what they're doing as Acts unfolds. What they heard from Jesus their teaching. And remember, they're not experts at this. At the very end of their three-year internship, Jesus is still pulling them aside there post-resurrection, Luke 24, and showing them all the things in the Old Testament about himself. He's helping them pull this all together in their minds because he knew he was about to tell them, now you go and teach this. Tell them who I am. Show them how I was predicted in the Old Testament and then tell them the story of how I lived among you. 
did these great works to confirm the message and then accomplished redemption at Calvary and an empty tomb. So the apostles' teaching takes us back to what is the body of that material and it focuses on Christ. We see that secondly when we consider Peter's example. We studied that last week, Acts chapter 2. What was Peter saying? Essentially he was saying that Jesus is the risen Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, God's agent of redemption, and Jesus is the ruling Lord. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Verse 36 tells us. So for us today, the apostles' teaching is captured in Jesus' commission, teach others what I taught you. We see it modeled here as the church is beginning in Acts 2, Peter's example, make Jesus known. But this apostolic teaching is really specifically for us today when we consider how we hear the apostles' message. And that's through the book that is either on your lap or maybe has been digitized on your device. For us today, the apostles' teaching is the foundation for the written record. We call it the canon of Scripture. Canon is an old word that simply means like a measuring rod. It was the standard. So how did the church measure or determine what would be included in the Bible? Right? There's these 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, that make up what we call the Bible. But how did they know what letters to include, what accounts of events to include? Well, throughout the first century, the apostles' teaching was written down in the various letters, or they gave us their account of Jesus' life and ministry, the Gospels, we call that. And as the early church assembled the books that would make up our present-day Bible, one of the biggest factors in determining what to include was apostolic authority. Was it written by an apostle, or was it specifically endorsed, sanctioned by an apostle? Without that, it was likely not going to be included in what we call our Bible. So, when we see they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's not just an ancient concept. That concept has sustained the church's doctrine throughout the years to the present day by the very nature of having a book, a collection of books and letters that we call the Bible, and we say this is God's Word. If anyone declares their faith in the doctrine of the Bible's inerrancy, in its sufficiency, in it being breathed out by God, then they are coming under the umbrella of this simple verse that followers of Jesus embrace the teaching that came to us through the apostles. So that's a, there's a lot there. That's no small observation although it was a simple one. The text comes to us, remember, as simple observation, as if a passerby saw all these people gathered at the temple and said, man, they really seem concerned about what that Jesus said. 
That's the simplicity of it. The complexity, so to speak, comes in the, the vast volume of material that we have to study and rightly interpret uh, in our scriptures. So in this lo- local body, does it seem that we are pursuing with endurance God's word? Does it seem that we're busy with God's word? Can we say we have devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Obviously, we could apply this to the church and think, well, we have multiple scriptures read in the liturgy of the service. We have a call to worship, usually a scripture reading, often an affirmation of faith from the Bible, then we preach from the Bible. I think we could probably all feel pretty good if we looked at at the gathered worship and we asked the question, are we busy with the word. But let's, let's carry it a little further, maybe to, to the smaller groups than the massive corporate gathering. In our small group studies or gatherings or fellowship times, is the conversation anchored by truth? And there again, I've overheard the women's Bible study down in the lobby and the men's forum, and I've sat in different small groups with different ones of yous, and, and I would think, you know, I, I think in this we're, we're doing pretty well. When needs are shared or a story is told, many of you are good at tying that to what is true and how do we apply truth to that situation. So then we're kind of left with that last application of our individual lives. Because in a sense, we could kind of hide under the umbrella of the church or our small group or the ladies' Bible study and and say, collectively, we are busy with the word. But I think it would be appropriate for us to ask personally, am I preoccupied with the word during the week? Could I say, like I say about a lot of other important things, Man, I'm just really busy this week with, and we fill in the blank with our parenting, with the kids, and with the school activities. I'm really busy this week with the ball game. I'm really busy this week with this work project. Do we ever find ourselves thinking or saying, I'm really busy this week, trying to figure out how to, what the Bible says about this? Because that's the word there, devoted to, preoccupied with, pursuing, busy with truth with the word we must commit ourselves to bible teaching second we must commit to fellowship fellowship what in the world is fellowship right it has so many uses if we aren't intentional with this definition of fellowship we tend to default to a programmatic definition we're going to have a fellowship after the service, right? So as soon as somebody says hi, we all leave because there was a fellowship. No, it just becomes the program, what was offered. We have fellowship halls, right? As if no fellowship happens anywhere other than when we go to that hall. What does this word mean? Fellowship simply means having something in common. And that's the Bible word I'm talking about. You may define it another way, and that's fine. 
but trying to figure out text, we're looking at this word and it means to have something in common. It means then sharing something. We share a common bus route. And so you could get on the bus and ride into town and the same people get on the bus. Well, you fellowship. Well, not in the way we think of it in church talk, talking and getting along, but you share something in common. The same bus ride. Fellowship. For the church then, this sharing something together, this having something in common, obviously is something more than just coincidences and living in similar places. We start by understanding fellowship by thinking that we are celebrating a common or shared bond. Now, what kind of bond is this? What are we bonded to? Well, to each other, yes, that's true, but why? Because of our bond in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says we have Christ in common. We share in the fellowship of his Son. That's not just the fellowship with the Son, it's also the fellowship that results from his Son. So when this person over here believes in Jesus, yes, he fellowships with the Son, but he has something in common with someone else who believes, and their bond, their sharing is that they both treasure Jesus. They have a fellowship in the Son. 2 Corinthians, in the benediction we often cite at the end of the service, reminds us that we have a fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is with us. What is the common connection between you, me, and the Holy Spirit? We share in Him. He is in us. We have something in common there. Oh, you walk in the Spirit? So do I. You received that Spirit upon your faith in Jesus? So did I. We share something. The Scriptures tell us in Philippians 1.5 that we have a fellowship in the Gospel. We have something in common. When life gets hard, we default to this anchor of hope. And when we look at it again, we see that it's actually good news. And it just helps us keep our perspective about the definition of bad news. Bad isn't competing with good. Bad is something far less. It's swallowed up by good. Our faith is anchored in the good news that our God works all things together for good. Because this plan to save us from our sin is all-encompassing in this life and the next. So everything bad in this life is minimized in the sense that it takes a backseat to a much bigger definition of what is good. We remember that. We share that in common and we remind each other of it. So when you're discouraged, despairing, depressed, there are words that can be spoken to uplift and encourage and comfort because we have something in common. This forms the spiritual foundation of fellowship on which we build the practical demonstrations of fellowship. So we could think of it as spiritual fellowship what we share in Christ, the theological realities of that, 
but I think it's also right to think of material fellowship. You might talk about being united with the family of God, but how do my eyes actually see it? What do you mean? How does that flesh out in real living? So when we fellowship, number two, we are sharing our needs. We're making needs known, that's sharing, and we're providing for needs, that's sharing. I want us to see as we look in the text here that this is what unfolds, though we know the reality is based on what Peter preached, and they affirmed that and said, that's what I believe. How do I get that? And Peter says, repent. Claim Jesus as Lord. Receive the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 are added, it says. So we know that they're affirming the same spiritual bond, but the text unfolds the material side. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This was voluntary sharing, rooted in faith and love. Faith that God will provide what I need and love for their brothers in need. But I want to make this clear. This is voluntary sharing. And we'll see that voluntary nature in the very next chapter, stories that unfold. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going we're to look at that story and see, wait, wait a minute, there, there was no mandate given that you have to sell anything and give the proceeds to somebody in need. This simple observation in our paragraph is just a wonder. They're just looking around and seeing, wow, look what they did. They even sold some of their possessions in order to help those who were less fortunate. But to be clear, this is not communism, as some have interpreted it. Communism means there's no right to private property. But clearly, our text even says it was their possessions. This was their stuff, so we're not talking communism, nor are we talking socialism, where you can have your own property, but it's just any profit or benefit from your wealth, from your wisdom, from your hard work, is going to be shared with everyone equally. That's not here either, because what is missing is any mandate. This is simply a heart of love on an individual basis saying, maybe I could do this and help with some needs. That's the work of the Spirit. Complete freedom here. So don't let anyone say that Christianity is some kind of cult, that we have to live in some kind of commune together and find some utopian status where we share everything in common. That, that's not what the text is saying. The in commonness starts with, we believe Jesus is Lord. And then out of love, which marks the disciples of Jesus, we obey the Spirit's prompting to give. But nothing in the text, nothing in Old Testaments or New, says that there was ever any kind of problem with some Christians having a lot of this world's goods and other Christians having very little of it. That's God's business. 
and it falls under this big, um, big umbrella of stewardship. He entrusts some with so many talents and others with those, but the expectation of each is the same. Be faithful with what I've given you. And it also helps us just think a little bit about sharing our stuff, sharing our time, sharing our food. We're stewards, remember. So what we have as what we call our own is actually God's, and he's entrusted it to us. And that brings a whole new approach to this idea of fellowship and sharing in common. I do it because it's God's stuff, not mine. So if he says, give it, I give it. And if that seems like a stretch to me, then, then I understand why walking in the Spirit is an act of faith. Most of us don't need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so most of us don't. And yet, the prayer was designed not only for those who don't have cupboards full to take care of tomorrow, it was to remind us that we are dependent on God for everything. And this affects how we fellowship. You, can, you never lose. You, you never get the short end of the stick. You're never the giver and everyone else is the taker when you share. Because if God says to share, you share. It's just how spirit-filled family works. In fellowship, we work hard. We endure towards sharing life with God's people. The spiritual level and now on the very material level. The next point isn't unlike fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Let me give you two thoughts here. One, this could include the Lord's Supper. I say could because you can read the text there. And if I asked you to, to pick out the signs for how would we know if this is the Lord's Supper, the breaking of that bread, or just the breaking of bread that appears in verse 46. Day by day, they went to the temple and they were breaking bread house to house. How do we know if they're different breaking breads? Or if one is the Lord's Supper and one is just sharing a meal? I don't know that we can know. So I say, this could include the Lord's Supper. If in the gathered worship we partake of the Lord's Supper, then obviously that's one way of sharing a fellowship, reminding ourselves of the bond we have in Christ. Some will argue that the breaking of bread in verse 42 is different from 46 because of the little word, the. We call that a definitive article, right? It's an article describing the noun, but it's definitive. The, or we might say, the bread, the breaking of bread. Well, that, that could factor in. It's just that verse 42 seems to be such a summary that the rest of the paragraph unfolds that everything is described as definitive in verse 42. And we would then have to nuance which teaching of the apostles' teaching 
And which fellowship of the fellowship? And which prayers of the prayers? So camping out on just that word and saying, oh, see, it's the breaking of bread proper, the specific one. It applies to all these things, and we'd have to get more specific on all of them. And specific is not what the text is about. It's about a casual observation of this fledgling church. Wow, they're really attentive to what Jesus said, and they seem to love each other, and they're praying and eating together, and they just seem like a big family. This is not a systematic theology of what the church should look like. It's just an observation. So to camp out on specific descriptives of the doesn't seem to fit what we're studying. But we can't deny that the church practiced the remembrance of the Lord's work by partaking of the bread and the drink. So we would say this could include the Lord's Supper. And while this phrase could include the Lord's Supper, we know this. It certainly involves the common meals. Namely, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Whether you eat all three of those or not, the text tells us that families eat together. And even spiritual families should find real application in spending time together around meals. There's no question that these people were sharing life together, not just on a spiritual level because of their bond of Christ, but in real time, in real places, and often with real food on the table. Study the life of Jesus. And, and just highlight in the Gospels all the times he was sitting at the table accomplishing kingdom work. I'm not saying all your table time has to be specific kingdom work, but you will find this is a rich opportunity to build spiritual relationships and fellowship uh, when you gather around physical relationships and fellowship. What more could you do to make meals an opportunity for relationships, for fellowship, for fulfilling what we see in the early church in Acts 2? Are your kids learning from you to be a server and a giver? Are they learning that homes are actually for hospitality? If we only had Acts 2 to teach us about how the church relates when we're not actually gathered to worship, we would conclude that you somehow go house to house spending time with people. Again, are we doing this? I think we are at some level. And maybe not at your house. I get it. You could meet at a restaurant. And there, there are lots of ways that you get in touch with people. I'm just saying, whatever you're doing, say, check, good. We know what we're supposed to be doing. Now ask, is there something more? Is, is, there, is there another house we could get into or they could come to our house? Invite yourself over or invite them over, right? Whatever you're better at. My bachelor days, I could probably drop a few good hints on being invited over. Now I don't have to do that so much. Uh, 
but be glad to have you over. So if you want to invite yourself over, have at it. We'll be happy to accommodate. The point is, the awkwardness of whether you invite or invite yourself over kind of goes away when you realize the norm should be we're good at dropping in on each other. You ever known somebody that was offended when you drop in unannounced? The expectation is you can't do that, you know? But quite the contrary in Acts 2. It seems like there was the expectation that doing life together as family means you could drop in. Oh, that's what you're having? You know what? Be back tomorrow, right? I'm family. I can take it or leave it. That kind of casual relationship, but let's face it, when we have people over, we tend to get a little more hyped up than that. Uh, we think it's performance mode for the host and hostess. Everything's got to be good, and, and that's not an Acts 2. Uh, whatever was on the menu is what you get. And it says they received their food with glad and grateful hearts. Why? Because maybe it wasn't about the food and the menu. Maybe it was about the people they were sitting at the table with. Listen, I'm all about the good food. Let's do that as best we can but only to serve and to love. Let's focus on the people across the table from us. Can we do any better there? That's the beauty of this text. Something as simple as meals ends up being a pillar of the beauty of a loving, fledgling church. Finally, it says they committed to the prayer. We see that they prayed, and thus we can conclude that we should pray, right? Simple application. What did they do? They prayed. All right, we need to be praying. But again, we have some prayers in our gathered worship. You probably do some praying throughout the week and not really focused on prayer as much as perhaps from this text, could we ask the question, what should we pray for? So let's look at our text, specifically verse 42, and think about how we should pray this week. We could pray for understanding and application of God's word. Pray that this week. So whether it's this sermon on being the church and relationships and fellowship, Lord, give, help me understand what this would look like for our family, our stage of life, our limitations, our strengths, our weaknesses. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's there in the Word. So the argument isn't, am I supposed to be involved in other people's lives and have fellowship? It's how and to what extent. What does it look like for me? Pray that this week. See how God answers. We pray for understanding of the truth that we've heard. Secondly, we pray for one another's needs. We're supposed to be people of fellowship, sharing things in common, then, then know what's going on in someone's life and share that burden with them. Come under the load and let it rest on you. It can't rest fully on you. It's not your burden. But some of it could rest on you. Bear one another's burdens. And so much of the, li the life that we live, I just can't hand to someone else except in their prayers for me. So share that load. Pray for one another's needs. Find some way to be reminded in the course of the week. Our devices are 
fraught with all these reminders and things going off all the time, let some of them be, hey, Wednesday, it's the middle of the week. I'm going to follow up with that person that shared their life's burden with me in the lobby on Sunday. Or my small group shared several requests. Wednesday's the day I'm going to pray about those things. Too often, I fear the response is going to be, someone's going to say, well, you only prayed for it on Wednesday when your timer went off? Well, at least they prayed for it, right? So let's focus on that, because so often we aren't busy with, I don't have time for that because I'm busy with devoting myself to prayer. So praying for one another's needs might actually be a good thing to pray this week. Pray for daily bread and the love to share it. This breaking of bread. If it's the Lord's table, it reminds us we're the family of God and we're in Christ and should look like him. So what does that love look like? God's given you much. Does he want you to to share that? Is that in having somebody over, or is that in taking funds and helping projects and ministries, whatever it is? This whole, this whole realm of giving flows out of this sharing what we have in common. But specifically, the breaking of bread, sharing those meals together. Pray that God would foster and fan the flame of love in you so that, that you would come to enjoy what we call hospitality. You enjoy people. I'm not saying you'll become the great extrovert if you're an introvert. I'm just saying that God would stir in you a love for people that maybe you show in your introverted way, right? Ask God to answer that prayer to teach you to love others. And then I just want to highlight three things in the text as we pray for God's work among this local church, this body, this family. We're meeting here. Hopefully we'll connect in various ways throughout the week and live out our Christian lives even before unbelieving eyes. And there's three things that I think we could pray for based in this text. The first is in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Awe. Fear. Reverential fear. A wonder. It it lends understanding to when we say this text is kind of a summary. A passerby is seeing something and describing it. And Luke, the author of the passerby, is saying, I saw other people and they were struck by wonder. They were amazed at what they saw in the way these people related to each other. It was so ungentile, unroman like. It was so unJewish like. It was some other way of relating. There was an awe. We need to pray that God would use the way that we care for each other. To, to create in others who see how the church exists and relates a wonder for that. Perhaps because their family is a mess. 
And they think, why would I add another family, a church family, to this mess? But when they see it, they can't help but thinking, it sure must be nice to belong. It sure must be nice to mess up horribly and know that nobody's walking away from you. It sure must be nice to have some help when you don't know what's right to do. So let's pray that God would stir awe and wonder in others when they see how Grace Bible Church just goes about being the family. Verse 47. It says they were having favor with all the people. Favor. We don't know what this would look like, but we know Jesus, as he grew up in a system of Judaism, Judaism that would be hostile to his teaching eventually, dominated by Rome that would be hostile to the Jews. Jesus, it says, he grew in favor with God and with men. Paul would tell Timothy to pray in chapter 2, maybe 2 Timothy, to pray that for our government leaders so that we could go about practicing our faith peaceably. With, with their favor, so to speak. So this idea is clearly God's work. He has to grant this kind of favor, and yet we're told that there's something we can do, this demonstration of love, that would win us favor, so to speak, with those around us. They may, they may hate your ideas. They, they may hate what you stand for, whether it's the truth of sexuality that rages in our culture, whether it's uh, the truth of the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, whatever it is, they may hate what you think and what you stand for, but it can be our great desire that they would look at us as people, they would look at our families, they would see the way we treat our wives, and they would not be able to deny that there is no better neighbor to have across the street than those people. There is nobody that treats a wife as good as that guy does. There's nobody that spends more time and patience on his kids than that guy does. That should be seen so that they recognize there's something there and, and that's God's business then. This is all part of how he might stir them up and draw them in. We see awe, we see favor, and then verse 47 concludes with fruit. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That kept happening. This church was desirable. It was a place of belonging. It was a place of truth in an age then as it is now of moral relativism. Give me something to stake my life on. Give me something meaningful. Frankly, the world's still asking that question. They don't even know they're asking the question, but I assure you, to reject the body that God has given you and, and to literally dress up as something else is asking the question, what is meaningful in this life? Because I'm trying to find it in all my own pursuits. And they may not like your answer, but they need it. 
The only meaningful existence is found in recognizing who my creator is and bowing my knee to him. We need to pray that God would stir up wonder at people who see his church, that God would grant his church favor as we proclaim our message and that God would give us fruit, that somebody might fill one of these empty chairs because you told them about Jesus. That's how we can pray this week. We can devote ourselves to prayer, and you might never even get to your physical sickness and more money for a gym building, but you could labor in just this text, praying that God would honor his word in this church and the churches around our city. I want to close with one more rudimentary but specific application. While this text does say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, I'd have to recognize that the weight of the application lands squarely on share meals with others. That's what families do. It's the physical demonstration of sharing that provides this rich environment for the the spiritual sharing. Jesus did it often, and I think we should too. So again, don't think rebuke. Don't think looking back, oh, what I should have done. Simply look forward and say, what could I do around the meal table to look more like the church in Acts chapter 2. May God help us to be busy with and devoted to making the church feel like family. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of this passage that unfolds what a church should be. It's just not complicated. We can all read this text and just see new converts, followers of Jesus. We can almost feel their excitement as they were always together. And yet we've been Christians long enough to know the the excitement can tend to wane and the irritations take over and we don't cover them in love and the squabbling and the dividing and the ease of just being alone takes over. But from this text, stir up within us a rejection of alone, of independence. Give us the faith to step out and love others in a way that is tangible and real. Thank you for so many examples in this room of, of lovers and givers and sharers. May they lead us on, drag us on in getting better at this. Thank you as we, as we think of sitting at a table and fellowshipping, that because Jesus died and rose again, you, Heavenly Father, invite us to sit at your table, in your presence, and feast forever in joy. So for this good news, we give you our thanks. 
And in response to it, we surrender ourselves to be used in your plan this week. So take us and do with us as you see fit in Jesus' name. Amen.